Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. We have a real treat for you today. We are joined by an absolute legend. Joining us on the show is Dr. Ed Altman. He is a renowned professor and researcher, and he is best known for his work in the field of bankruptcy prediction and credit risk analysis. He is probably most famous for developing the Z-score formula in the late 1960s. That's right, the Z-score has been around for over 50 years and it is a financial model that uses historical data to predict a company's likelihood of bankruptcy. This model is widely used by investors, financial analysts, auditors, and more as a tool for predicting corporate defaults and it's also an aid in credit risk management. In this episode, uh, we discuss with Dr. Altman where we are in the credit cycle and why it is so important to examine the credit cycle. Uh, we also talk about um, the impact if we see a recession, the impact that will have on credit markets. And we also delved into his deep dive research on global zombies. Really enjoyed learning from Dr. Altman. I always learn something new from him and I think you will too. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ed Altman. Dr. Ed Altman, the Max L. Hine Professor of Finance Emeritus at the Stern School of Business at NYU. It is so great to welcome you on the show and great to see you, Professor Altman. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Julia. It's great to see you as well. Well, I am really excited to have you on and also just introduce you to this audience. And of course, I'm sure many of our audience members are familiar with you and your work in the bankruptcy world. And also, you are the pioneer of the Z-score. Usually where I start in this show is the big picture. And when I think of you, that big picture is the credit cycle, understanding where we are in the credit cycle. I know you've been studying the credit cycle for many, many decades. So I would love to just kind of understand where are we in the credit cycle these days and what does it indicate? Yes, Julia, Julia, quite correct. I have been studying it for probably more than five decades, believe it or not, uh, although it's much more focused today and um, more important today because I think we're at a, the crossroads. Uh, I think it's important to explain, to start with the kind of spectrum of credit cycle that we talk about. From the benign situation, that's where money is easy, interest rates are low, defaults are low, recoveries if there are defaults are high, uh, and generally, investors have a very um, optimistic look at credit markets. Then, if you proceed further in the spectrum, you might start seeing increases in risk, particularly default risk, um, higher required rates of return, and other indicators that we'll talk about. And so we go from maybe a benign situation to an average year, however, increasing risk uh, along the way. And then you have the stress cycles. That's where uh, risk becomes extremely uh, important and high. And finally, if it goes even worse, you have crises. And we've lived through maybe three or four of them in the last 30 years, going back to 1990, 91, 01, 02, 08, 09, and a brief one, uh, during the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So that's the spectrum. 
Where we are today, we need to look at, in my opinion, and it's strictly my opinion, so you may get a different uh, a response from others who study credit cycles. We look at five indicators. So let me go through those and tell you what's happening today in each of those indicators, reach a conclusion, and then talk about the outlook, if that's okay. Oh, that's perfect. So the five indicators that I've found most helpful over the years, and in terms of being able, in most cases, to quantify them, are first and foremost, default rates. And as you know, Julia, I go back to the early days of Drexel Burnham and other companies pioneering the increase in high yield bonds in the early 1980s. So my focus when I talk about the credit cycle is on the most risky part of the uh, financial spectrum, mm-hmm. and that is the um, um, high yield bond and leveraged loan market. Um, and so um, let me uh, open the page, good. Uh, we then uh, look at default rates. Now, the second one is recovery rates if there are defaults. Generally, in a benign situation, recovery rates are high. And in a stress situation, the recovery rates are quite low to investors, but they're also very attractive prices for distressed investors. A third one is the required rate of return of investors. How uh, uh, this translates into their outlook as to the market and as to defaults and as to uh, the required return on risky debt. So that's the third one. The fourth is something called a distress ratio. And I'll define that more carefully for you when we get to the actual numbers. And finally, and maybe the most important and the most challenging in terms of analysis and prediction, and that is liquidity in the market, how liquid the market is, and how easy is it for firms of high and even low risk to raise capital? So those are the five indicators. So let's go through them and tell you tell them where each one is today. First, default rates. And I'm talking about, again, default rates in the high-yield bond market, either through bankruptcies, missed interest payments, or what's called distressed exchanges, which is where the, um, the credit is, uh, agree to an exchange, but they end up losing money compared to what they had been promised to start with. Um, and default rates average over the last 40 or 50 years in the high yield market around three, 3.3% per year in that market. Um, and so a benign situation is where the default rate is much lower than the historic average maybe below 2% or even below 1%. Uh, an average year is where it's between 3 and 3.5%. Three and, and a stressed year is a 6, 7, and then distressed uh, uh, crisis would be around a 10% or more default rate. Today, year to date, through the first half of this year, the default rate is 1.6%. Now, if you extrapolate that for the rest of the year, you come up with a little over 3%, and that's an average year. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind 
that we were in a benign situation with very low default rates for most of the last decade, just prior to COVID. It accelerated during COVID in 2020, but then dropped to extremely low levels due to government intervention, uh, Fed policy, and an improving uh, economy. It dropped to um, uh, less than 1% in 2021, about 1.3% in 2022. This year, I'm expecting an average default rate. Although I must tell you, Julia, all of the other rating agencies, with possible exception of KBRA, which is an up-and-coming rating agency, um, but the big three are all expecting default rates between four and five and a half percent. And that's a huge increase over what it was last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. I'm not that negative this year. Where I become negative is 2024 and 2025. And that had a lot to do with the trend, but also the possible recession. And we'll talk about catalysts as well. The second variable is uh, recoveries. If there are defaults, what can an investor who owned the bonds expect to be able to sell them for? Or what it costs a distressed investor to purchase the defaulted bond or bank loan? Historically, around 45 cents on the dollar for corporate bonds. Of course, it's higher for more secured bonds and lower for junior bonds. Um, and it varies, of course, by industry and by size of the firm, et cetera. This year, through June of this year, the recovery rate, believe it or not, has dropped to under 20 cents on the dollar. Remember, historically, it's more than 40 cents mm -hmm. on the dollar. Something's going on that's talking about the quality of assets of these distressed companies and also the supply and demand for uh, distressed debt in general, economic uh, uh, factors. When you have a lot of defaults and a lot of defaults that are being expected as well as uh, uh, arriving at the market uh, and you have a pretty stable demand, then the supply and demand will dictate lower prices. And that's exactly what's happening today. So that to me is one of the indicators that the cycle is going to get worse rather than better. Third, required rates of return by investors. Here is a conundrum for me. The conundrum is as follows. Usually, if investors expect higher default rates, you would expect them to require higher than average required rates of return on risky debt. That's not the case this year. Indeed, the average uh, spread between high yield bonds and treasuries historically is around 5%. This year, year to date, and it's dropped quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, it's only around 4%. So the spreads are much lower than what you'd even say would be the case in an average year. So either the market is correct and we will not have much defaults. We will not have a recession. 
we will not have higher interest rates or the market is underestimating the risks. My personal feeling is today's required rates of return by investors in high yield bonds and leveraged loans is underestimating the near term risk, particularly in 2024 and 25 of investing in risky debt. Mm. They're requiring only around 4%. So if you talk about 10 year treasuries being around 4%, a spread of 4% means around an average yield required of about 8%. I think that's too low for risky debt today. Uh, The fourth category, distress ratio. That is the percentage of high yield bonds selling at more than 10% above the risk-free rate. So if the risk-free rate's around 4% today for 10-year treasuries, that means any bond whose yield to maturity or option-adjusted spread or option-adjusted yield is more than 14%. 10% plus four. And what percentage of the market is average to have over the years of this spread? It's around eight to 10% of the high yield market historically sells at this distressed level. And 90% or so sells at less than the distress level. Um, and today, year to date, actually, as of today, or last week anyway, when I looked last, it's about 8%, so about the historic average. And then finally, liquidity. I hope I'm not losing the audience and I'll come back and summarize. No, Honestly, this is so great. It's, I'm, I'm taking a lot of notes. I think everyone's probably learning. Great. Uh, well, the, um, the final one is liquidity. Probably the most important one and the most difficult and challenging to forecast going forward because liquidity among all the variables that I've mentioned is the one that can change most quickly. The faucet of liquidity can be turned off literally overnight or turned on. And so we have observed there was enormous amounts of liquidity prior to COVID for about seven or eight years. Then it dropped dramatically, but only for a few months during COVID and has come roaring back until 2022. And it's 2022, even before Silicon Valley, even before uh, the prospect of a serious recession, even before interest rates were as high as they are now, uh, we found that the liquidity was falling dramatically in 2022, particularly the last six months of that year. Today, it's picked up, particularly in the last month or so, for the high yield market. So year to date, this number might not mean much to many people. It's about $95 billion of new high yield bonds that have been issued, liquidity. Even if you extrapolate that for the rest of the year to come up to about 180 billion, that's quite a bit below the historic average and certainly below what it was in 2020, 2021, uh, and the first part of 2022. So liquidity has dropped quite a bit, although it has come back 
synonymously with the increase in the stock market. And let me, as a footnote, mention that liquidity spreads and uh, prices in the high yield or risky debt market are extremely highly correlated with the stock market. In fact, higher than ever before at about 0.8. Historically, it's about 0.4, uh, In other words, it's correlated positively, but not nearly as much as it has been uh, ever since the financial crisis of 2008-2009. So to summarize where we are using those five indicators, most of them imply we're at an average year. Now, average doesn't sound very ominous. However, when you consider the trend, and one other factor, which I don't have a graph, which I to explain it uh, more easily, but I'll try to explain it. But the conclusion that I have is that we've reached an inflection point between benign and average. But this year, 2023 is a year when very little high yield bonds are maturing, coming due. So if there's defaults this year, and there are, we're at 1.6% of the market. That's higher than all of last year by quite a bit. And it's only half a year. But it, it's, if you extrapolate, it's average. But it's much higher than it's been in 2021 and 2022, when default rates were extremely low. Now, the one graph that I would have liked to have shown your audience, but I think I can explain it, has to do with the relationship between default rates and economic recessions. Is, we can, um, I can always post-production put that chart in if you're referring to the one from your report on where we are in the credit cycle. Yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll put that chart in so you, you can speak to it and I'll just oh, okay, post-production. Thanks, Julia. That would be great. That uh, chart shows over time in the last four recessions, 1991, 0102, 08, 09, not as much in 2020, but that was a very short-lived uh, uh, financial turnaround situation when COVID first became clear. But in all the other cases, and some economists might raise their eyebrows and be surprised of what my conclusion is here, but I'm pretty confident about it, is that in every case, when we had a significant rise in credit risk and the cycle went from average to stressed and even crises in some of those years, we observed that the default rate starts rising one to three years prior to an economic recession, usually at a time when debt has been increased the most. In other words, you have a lot of debt, which, by the way, has increased dramatically in the high yield market since COVID started. Uh, record years in 2020 and 2021, uh, not so record in 2022. And so you have a big increase in debt. You have an increase in default rates from below average to average. And then we find 
if the next year is coincident with a recession, we find a big spike in default rates, lower recoveries, higher spreads, higher distress ratios, and a big drop in liquidity. And that is very likely to be the case, in my opinion, in 2024 and possibly 2025, if we have a hard landing recession. Even if it's a soft landing, I expect default rates and required rates of return and recoveries to be much more stressed than they are today. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I think can moderate the problem is, of course, if the Fed starts reducing interest rates to fight that recession, that could lower the stress. And if there are no other catalysts that add to the mm, problems, in other words, and this is something you, I know you're very sensitive to as well, the concept of catalysts and its impact on credit cycles. And the last thing I'll mention on the credit cycle is when we talk about catalysts like COVID or like the mortgage crisis back in uh, 08 and 09 or the dot-com bubble bursting or many other things over the years, these are usually events that nobody expected or very few people expected maybe a few far-sighted uh, folks like uh, maybe John Paulson did back in 08 and 09 in the big short. But I mean, who expected COVID uh, at the end of 2019? Well, my position in 2019 was, hey, we're living uh, in a very uh, inflated situation. Uh, credit was much too easy, uh, I felt, and debt was exploding globally, uh, but I didn't know what could be the catalyst to change things. And that's the case going forward, 2024 and 2025. But one thing I'm clear about, Julia, is that the trends are pointing to a higher default rate, regardless of if we get a big catalyst like Silicon Valley, for example. Yeah. But if we do, coincident with perhaps a hard landing recession and this increase in debt that we've had several years, we could be into another credit crisis. Not something that we won't recover from, but keep in mind those crises tends to uh, recur uh, in the United States more frequently than we'd probably like. Yeah. Well, one thing I do want to point out for the folks who are watching and listening is that you warned um, in mid-2007 of a, quote, great credit bubble at the time. You warned about that there was going to be trouble in the market and a meltdown in, in corporate defaults. And um, and I, that's why, I, th so this is what's so interesting to me is when you kind of understand the credit cycle, just, just give you better kind of understanding of like, these risks that are out there, or I, I just kind of want to help us understand like why it's so important to pay attention to, because it sounds like there's some real mm -hmm. warning signs um, when you look at these various indicators. Yeah, I believe in fundamentals, as you know. And back in 07, I remember giving a speech, Julia, in uh, 
Montreal to a very large, second largest French bank globally, uh, the North American division. And I painted that picture that you just mentioned about uh, the coming um, potential problem. I, I, I was unfamiliar really with the mortgage market. So I was basing it on credit fundamentals of companies. But all, uh, and I felt that, you know, the amount that was being paid for leveraged buyouts uh, reached an all time high back then. Uh, the debt to EBITDA ratio of, um, uh, of um, companies in general, but also highly leveraged transactions were at an all time high, both here and in Europe. Uh, spreads were much too low. So I told the CEO and his group that I expected uh, potentially a crisis in the next year or two. Well, I was right, but I didn't know the catalyst. And I just was doing it on fundamentals. Uh, and I think a lot of that is the case today. Because globally, and this is part of my other presentation when I talk about um, uh, the leverage cycle, We've had, you know, a tremendous amount of leverage to the global financial system. And with higher interest rates, it becomes so much more important to understand that than when interest rates are low and people say, who cares? You know, but then we have this debt limit problem in the United States. Uh, and that's the symptomatic of the amount of debt that we have, you know, 31, 32 uh, trillion dollars uh, already. And did you know that every day in the United States, uh, the government pays $2 billion per day, where just a year or so ago, it was $1 billion per day. And that's a function of the increase in debt and, of course, higher interest rates. So, yeah, uh, there are many of the same factors. I don't think it's as severe in 2023 as it was in 2024. Uh, sorry, in uh, uh, 2007. But I do believe there are some of the same uh, factors that there were back then, uh, especially now with the stock market taking off again and inflating uh, equity values and valuations of companies in a, a very uncertain market. Yeah, yeah, very, very uncertain, as you point out. Um, and I, you may have addressed it already, but when we were going through the various indicators, and it's kind of more of a curiosity to me, why why has the default rate been so low? Is it the government intervention that we've seen? What is it? Uh, well, yeah, you're certainly, if you're talking about 2021 and 2020, uh, 2022, uh, you're quite right. And it's what I said, the default rate was extremely low. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. First of all, the economy was uh, recovering. Second, um, interest rates were still very, very low. And so when you have a low interest rate environment, not only do companies have to pay back less than they would if the interest rates were high, but also it's very attractive to float new debt. And so any companies that were having trouble found a lot of liquidity, and indeed, they were able to uh, to float new debt uh, and sustain themselves. Uh, in a new study that we're working on called Global Zombies, one of the really interesting findings is that a country like the United States actually has more zombies 
than the average country in the world. And you might say that sounds very strange because, you know, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We have the most developed capital markets. Um, we have all sorts of uh, bank and non-bank sources of funds. Why are there so many zombies? Well, the answer is, I believe, one of the reasons, not the only one, is that, you know, with so many uh, avenues, mechanisms to rate funds, equity and debt, and also forbearance on the part of the country and the banks in that COVID period, the amount of zombies actually can increase much more than in a country that has restricted um, capital markets and relatively few, because there, those companies that are zombies probably will perish. But you know, the old term for a zombie is the walking dead. Mm -hmm. They continue to survive, even though they should die. And so we may get to this when we discuss zombies and Z-scores. We use Z-scores as well as interest coverage ratios to define zombies. And the Z-scores are actually quite um, important in this. Bottom line, a highly developed capital market can actually increase zombieism. Uh, and I think that's one of the causes in the United States. Yeah. Um, before we move on to Z scores and zombieism, because I do want to, I do want to discuss that paper. I just want to get one more clarifying question in. Um, and do you do you see a scenario um, where we could get to? I, I think I wrote this down: ten percent on defaults. Is is that the scenario you see? Or um, I want to hear kind of like what. <laughs> what do you expect or what yeah. is kind of the forecast, if you will? And what does what would that mean? Um, what would that mean for our economy? Yeah, well, I'm not exactly a Dr. Doom. Uh, I, I know you've had Norio Rubini we on have, your program. Yeah. And if you go back to Henry Kaufman at times in the past, uh, who's a great friend of mine and uh, one of the real pioneers in the risk uh, area um, uh, over time, um, 10% or more is definitely uh, a crisis situation in credit markets. Uh, we've had several of those periods. Um, it went to the highest year ever was 2002, when it was about 12 or 13%. It was 10% back in, um, I believe, uh, uh, 1991 or so. Uh, and it only rose to about 6% during uh, uh, 2020, the first and important year during COVID. But a 10% is a huge amount, especially in a market that is now close to $2 trillion of bonds. And by the way, Julia, I didn't mention this. This year is one of the first times I've observed, not the only time, but one of the first times when the default rate on leveraged loans these are loans syndicated through banks um, or, or non-banks, but they're loans as opposed to the bond market, which is usually longer in maturity and has uh, very different covenants than the loans. The default rate year-to-date on leveraged loans is actually 2.6%. So if you extrapolate that for the rest of the year, you're 
a much above average year for defaults of leveraged loans. Mm. Uh, but usually it's the bond market that leads the default rate uh, numbers because uh, companies that qualify for bonds oftentimes are less credit worthy than, than, than loans uh, who have the, you know, the regulator looking over their shoulder. Um, but um, uh, your, your point about, could it be a 10% uh, um, uh, credit crisis situation? Uh, the answer is is definitely yes, but I'm not predicting it. Uh, not yet, anyway. This is what has to happen for it to be a crisis. First, uh, we have to go into a hard landing recession, which, by the way, I think now around 65% of economists think that will take place in the United States, but not until 2024. And the reason why 2024 is uh, perhaps more vulnerable than this year is a lot more debt is coming due, maturing mm -hmm. in 2024, and even more in 2025. If you superimpose that plus a hard landing recession, perhaps still persistently high inflation, and you factor in the possibility of some catalyst that we didn't expect, maybe some global macro crisis, some further dramatic tensions between the United States and China. Um, the, the Russian situation gets worse if it's possible. Um, and then you factor in something we never expected, you know, like the Silicon Valley, which came as a huge surprise, and, and uh, other banks like First Republic and First uh, um, uh, uh, other regional banks, um, um, and um, if you factor in something like that on top of a recession, on top of a rising default rate and higher debt, very likely you're going to have a 10% plus year, which happens. You know, we have to be prepared for it uh, to happen because it's happened before, and I'm sure it's going to happen again. Uh, probably in my lifetime, but maybe not. But certainly it's going to happen again because that's part of the spectrum of credit cycles. That's what we observe. And uh, it's not something to to uh, to say is not likely to happen again. I want to hear um, about zombies and the Z-score. Um, you wrote a, a big paper um, on global zombies. So maybe it would be helpful Maybe we should level set for the audience. Um, we can define some of the terms like zombieism. What is a zombie company? And also we should define and we should talk about uh, the Z-score that you pioneered, gosh, well over 50 years at this point on the Z-score. Yeah, it's, maybe ancient history, but uh, for some reason that model persists. It's still probably the most popular one that's being used out there. Um, if you go on Bloomberg or other uh, software packages or whatever, you'll find it uh, pretty easily to find. And I think one of the, re the three main reasons it's still around, uh, that this multi-factor uh, financial ratio 
including market value of equity type variables is because it's relatively simple, five variables, five sets of uh, um, weightings, uh, all summed up to get a Z-score on a company. Um, it's easy to calculate, as I said. It's very accurate still, probably 80 to 90% accurate predicting bankruptcy within two years. Um, and uh, and it's free, <laughs> so you don't have to pay anything for it. So the Z-score um, is one of the two uh, factors that we look at by the way, you must have both present in a company to define a zombie firm. The other factor, oh, by the way, and the Z-score for a company must be below zero for at least three years. So not only a one-year phenomena, but it must be a persistent phenomena. And also the ability of the firm's earnings, or I like better cash flow, to cover their interest uh, payments. You must have both factors. Interest coverage ratio is the more traditional definition of a zombie firm, and I'll define zombie firms in a moment, but we find that that's much too liberal. In the United States, probably close to 20%, believe it or not, listed companies uh, have a interest coverage ratio less than one, in other words, their cash flows can cover their interest payments in a year <clears throat> or even a, a three-year period. So we superimpose on that traditional definition, Z-score. Now, the reason why we've chosen Z-score is this is a, a tried and tested model for predicting bankruptcy. And what we're saying is that a company that qualifies as a likely bankrupt using Z-score but doesn't default or go bankrupt. That's a definition of a resilient firm for some reason that continues to survive, live on, when a accurate proven model plus an interest coverage ratio say it shouldn't. A so, uh, uh, if you want a definition of a zombie, probably the most simple definition is insolvent company for several years, that continues to survive and doesn't default. They either get support from banks, governments, equity investors, or for some reason or other, uh, the market refuses to let them die. So they become zombies. Eventually, many of these zombies do default. Many of these zombies are purchased by other companies at very low prices or recover. But the percentage of zombie companies in the United States today among listed companies, not even counting non-listed companies, is about 8%. Mm -hmm. So about 8% of U.S. listed companies qualify by this dual factor dual filter approach interest coverage and z-score less than zero for your readers who are familiar or your listeners who are familiar with z-score forget about the ancient cutoff score 
that I used back in 1967, 68, when we published first the Z-score model, that was 1.8. Many times people still refer to that. And in fact, many of the software packages say a firm less than 1.8 Z-score is likely to default. That's no longer the case today. Things have changed dramatically. And now the cutoff score is much more appropriately set at zero. Any firm with a negative Z-score for three years in a row qualifies as a zombie if it's accompanied by interest coverage less than one, which it usually is. So, hence the so that's our definition. Filter. That's the 8%. And what our study does, and by the way, we're still revising the study. It's under review now at a major uh, finance academic journal, and they're asking us to do a lot more to justify our approach. And we measure Z-scores for the 20 largest countries in the world over the last 30 years. And one of our conclusions is that zombieism globally has increased from 1.5% to about 7% since 1990. And in the United States, it has increased from about 5 or 6% to about 8 or 9% um, uh, this past year. Now, a very important question is, how serious is zombieism? You know, is it something that we should be concerned with? Uh, you know, the term is exotic, a little sexy, but at the same time, who cares? if we have zombies? Well, I think we should care, although it's more conceptual in a sense that you can think about a country and its banks or its government or its investors supporting, allocating resources, refinancing these companies when it would be better to use those resources elsewhere. Also, um, you know, uh, it may sound a little crazy today to say this, but I think one of the reasons we had deflation in the United States, but also in Europe in particular for a decade prior to the most recent increase uh, in prices and inflation was uh, zombieism. Uh, if you have a lot of zombies, they try to, to survive by lowering the prices of their goods and services. But usually what happens is if they are, you know, a significant company and they have systemic uh, um, uh, aspects to it, the larger, more potent solvent companies in their same industry will lower their prices mm -hmm. and usually um, outperform the zombies. Think about movie theaters and uh, uh, retail stores uh, that try to, you know, compete by lowering their prices. Well, usually if they are important to the industry, they will be met by competition who also lower their prices. One of the benefits of zombies, you know, employment. If the zombie continues, so do the zombie employees. So that's one argument, or it could be strategic to a country, like a national airline, 
you know, Alitalia, the Italian airline, was a zombie probably for the last 20 years. They they were supported, actually, believe it or not, not too many people know this, by a consortium of private equity firms uh, about six or seven years ago, and it didn't work. So finally now, the old Alitalia has disappeared, but they're still there uh, in another form called the Italian Transportation uh, uh, Company. Uh, and so, you, but it's a much more diminished, smaller, less important entity than it was in the past. And there are a bunch of other examples of that. that is Bottom line, yeah. V-score was adopted by us in our uh, attempt to analyze zombies because, and we could have used some other bankruptcy prediction model, it's where if you have an accurate model saying that a firm should default, but it doesn't, you have to ask the question why. And one reason why is because they're zombies and somehow they're able to survive uh, uh, when most economic and financial uh, ana analytics would probably say they shouldn't. Mm. Okay. So this is so fascinating to me. Um, you're mentioning like um, around your thesis as to it could lead to price deflation. What are some of the other impacts or effects of um, zombie companies or keeping these companies alive? What are some of those impacts that um, folks should be considering or thinking about? One potential positive aspect of the zombie is if it's um, very uh, strategically important for a region or a country. And I'm thinking either the employment aspects, which I implied before, or perhaps um, national security. So you have firms that perhaps are producing products very inefficiently, losing money. But those products are pretty unique to the safety and security of the country. Think about today munitions, munitions, um, ammunition, uh, defense uh, uh, issues. By the way, um, uh, for many years, I'm not sure if it's still today, the Department of Defense in the United States used these scores, you know, to uh, screen out companies that they thought might default or go bankrupt. And they didn't want that to happen because these were strategically important to the country's defense. Um, well, uh, you know, this actually goes back to uh, the Japanese uh, zombie experience in the 1990s. Many country uh, companies in Japan were kept alive uh, artificially by stronger members of a group, the groupings, in, uh, I think it's called Keretsu in Japan. These are groups that usually had a mother uh, bank as part of the group and several manufacturing or service companies as part of the group. And the group felt that it was important to have solidarity and strength throughout the entire group. So the mother bank or a strong manufacturing company would support oftentimes through various ways um, the weaker members of their group so they, they didn't disappear and the group itself didn't lose 
uh, reputation, reputation risk and prestige and uh, resiliency. Uh, so for many years during the 1990s, Japan's zombies were camouflaged by these group supports, artificially kept them alive, so to speak, providing uh, liquidity, providing um, um, low interest lo loans, or maybe direct injections of equity, um, so that strategically the uh, group would uh, appear solid and strong. Well, that might be the case. For example, let's take a smaller country that has a very large, systemically important company. And that company runs into financial difficulty. I'm thinking as an example, I forget the name of the company, but let's take a country like Croatia. I know it's not on the top of your uh, list of companies that countries that you think of, but I just returned from a lecture tour and one of the places we visited was Croatia. And one aspect of Croatia is there's a, a giant uh, retail company that everybody knows and everybody uses there. Uh, and that company was losing money consistently. They you know, had very low Z scores, you know, couldn't cover their interest. And yet the government and uh, the banks continued to support them so that people would be able to you know, get their goods, uh, grocery goods from them. And also it provided, uh, you know, a significant amount of employment for the country. Um, and so zombies uh, can exist, um, you know, uh, even though uh, the policymakers realize that they are zombies. Yeah. Why is it that the U.S. has so many? I, you pointed out earlier that um, there we have more zombies here in the U.S. than the average com uh, country. Yes. Um, one of the most wealthiest, well-developed capital markets. Why is that? Well, it's a, you know, that's a, let's say a controversial question. Some people question that a sophisticated, um, highly liquid, um, in most m most cases, not always, but highly liquid uh, debt market can facilitate zombieism. Um, you would think that, um, you know, investors, creditors in particular, it's an arm's length transaction. They're not going to supply capital to companies if they think that they are uh, going to fail. Well, sometimes you supply capital so it won't fail. Let's say you're a bank and you don't wanna have write-offs on the loans that you've made, so you continue to make an interest-only loan. That is one form where a, a capital market, a, a strong banking system can support zombie companies. Or how about uh, high-yield bonds? Uh, think about the triple C, the lowest quality high yield bond category. You know, in many countries of the world, a triple C company has no chance to raise capital, no chance of if they're in trouble to survive. The United States, hmm, I would say on average, triple C's provide about 15%, some years more of the high yield bond market new issuance. Yeah, these are these are companies that have interest coverage ratios probably less than one, at least half of those com companies have that. 
have Z-scores less than zero, and yet triple Cs continue to get financing. They're one step from defaulting. Did you know that, I think, Julia, I might have mentioned this uh, to you, uh, you know, uh, earlier when we knew each other before, that the probability of default of a triple C company when it issues new debt is probably close to 50% over the next five years. Why would someone buy the debt? Exactly. You might say, why would anybody buy an asset class when 50% of those are going to default by the fifth year? Well, the answer is one, they believe that the other 50% is what they're going to choose. And the yield that they're promised on triple C's in general, you know, are extremely high yields that you can't find in any other fixed income market. And they feel that they have the ability to pick and choose the ones that are going to survive or not. Or, um, you know, they say, well, uh, we'll get out before everyone else does uh, if there's a problem. So we're we're savvy. You know, we, we know the market. So let's invest in a triple C. Let's get 15 percent. Um, uh, option adjusted uh, yield, uh, maybe a spread of more than 10% over. And uh, and by the way, some of these um, hedge funds that provide capital for um, distressed companies that might qualify as zombies, they might have what's called, you may have heard of this, a loan-to-own strategy. Mm-hmm. That is, okay, we'll lend money we'll get 15% yield or even more if we buy a debt at 80 cents on a dollar and it survives, it goes to heaven, it goes back to par, I'm gonna make 20% capital gain plus the yield of 15%. So I'm gonna make 35% return on a triple C or a low triple C or even a B minus company. And if they don't make it, I'm prepared in many cases, because I think there's good value there, that this firm, which may be a zombie for many years, can be turned around. I'm going to provide equity capital, loan to own. And once I'm a creditor, I have an inside track to providing the equity uh, capital should it have, uh, should it go into default and go bankrupt and restructure under chapter 11. So yeah, there are, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the United States has more zombies. We're very forgiving or we have a lot of more risk takers who are saying, yeah, it's a high risk, but you know, I'm willing to take that risk on a portfolio basis and reap the high yields that they provide. Yeah, that's that's fascinating too. Okay, you mentioned bankruptcy too. And this is a question I've been wanting to ask you because um, it seems like sometimes people view bankruptcy as something that's controversial. I don't know. Maybe that's just kind of my naive way of like how I think people might view it. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on bankruptcy, the benefits also versus bailouts. Um I just want to kind of hear your thoughts on the debate because it sometimes seems like people have this negative connotation of bankruptcy that's probably misguided. Well, actually, uh, Julia, you probably remember, because we've discussed this before, 
that um, I was asked to testify before the House Finance Committee back in 2008. That's right. December, actually, December 5th, I remember it vividly, as to whether or not the um, Congress and the U.S. government should bail out General Motors and Chrysler. And uh, they put together a panel uh, to give their opinion on this, as well as listening to the CEOs of uh, Ford, uh, General Motors, Chrysler, and the um, head of the union as to whether or not they should be bailed out or not. They were asking for a bailout for Chrysler and, and uh, um, General Motors. Um, and uh, I was one. Of, I was the only one on the panel that said, no, they should not be bailed out, but that they should go bankrupt because there are tremendous benefits in bankruptcy. And I'm talking not about liquidation. I'm talking about bankruptcy reorganization, so-called Chapter 11 reorganization, which gives a life to insolvent companies who restructure their capital uh, structure as well as their assets and become much more efficient uh, and hopefully going concerns. So when I presented this argument to um, uh, the House Finance Committee, which at that time was chaired by Bonnie Frank, uh, you may remember Dodd-Frank, well, uh, uh, the Frank from, uh, from Dodd-Frank was the chairman of the House Finance Committee. And I provided uh, what I thought was evidence. First of all, the Z-score was deep into the bankruptcy zone. Secondly, I felt that the most important benefit of bankruptcy, which is not available when you're not bankrupt, is something called debtor in possession financing, which means that a new creditor, or it could be the old creditor, provides new debt capital when the firm has gone bankrupt, and only when it has gone bankrupt, do they get a super priority status over all existing non-secured debt of that company. Uh, and it's an extremely profitable lending operation for banks. And at that time, uh, probably the leading company was um, General Electric's um, financial subsidiary, General Electric Credit. Um, and uh, General Motors had one as well and, and others. And so the ability for a firm to get this debtor in possession financing to provide liquidity when they're restructuring, I felt was absolutely critical to General Motors and much better than a bailout. Well, I can tell you, Julia, I wasn't very popular mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, uh, I wasn't exactly booed. But most of the Congress had a misconception about bankruptcy. They thought bankruptcy meant essentially liquidation, selling all the assets, firing all the people, and they would lose jobs. And these congressmen didn't want to be identified with the B word, the bankruptcy word. So what happened? Congress, well, let's take Congress separately. The House voted for the bailout. The Senate voted against the bailout for conservative reasons and, you know, the idea of uh, uh, the U.S. government supporting a private company by bailing it out 
even if it is a big icon like General Motors, uh, did not make sense. And the last thing that George Bush did, or one of the last things said, he said, I'm going to bail out GM and Chrysler. And now it's Obama's problem. And it was. But Obama did a great job in terms of forming a commission to look into the restructuring of the industry, force the management of the company to change or to uh, uh, make restructurings. Unfortunately, it didn't work. And six months later, Julia, probably one of the happiest days in my professional life, GM filed for bankruptcy on June 1st, 2009. You know, I was so happy because I felt strongly the only way GM could survive was to go bankrupt. That might sound ironic to a lot of people. To survive, you got to go bankrupt. And by the way, it's not just GM. Every major airline, with the exception of um, Southwest in the United States, has gone bankrupt at least once. Yeah. Well, except for the new guys, maybe like JetBlue. But the old, uh, you know, whether it was TWA for many years before they were merged, uh, United Airlines went twice, um, Continental went under, then became part of United, um, American Airlines went back. They all went bankrupt. And the reason why they're relatively healthy today, I believe, is they went bankrupt, restructured their uh, uh, employment uh, contracts, uh, got rid of a lot of debt, um, uh, cut costs here and there. You know, they're a pretty profitable industry right now. I think GM, uh, which is much better shape than it was back, you know, before uh, in 2008. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure GM would, would be here today if it didn't go bankrupt. So bankruptcy, yeah, you're right. And uh, bailout. Sometimes, uh, not only are they uh, misunderstood, um, you know, the stigma of bankruptcy sometimes uh, is very strong, uh, understandable with some people, but, you know, basically they were just ignorant of the um, uh, benefits of bankruptcy. And there are many, many others, you know, canceling contracts, dealing with leases, changing um, relationships with uh, the unions. Um, uh, a stay on uh, paying of interest, the tremendous benefits in bankruptcy. It's, yeah. it's why our system is copied now by uh, most of the world. And that's what I wanted to bring up with you. And that's why, Professor, it's so great to have you because you can help address the stigma around um, bankruptcy and help us better understand the benefits, as you point out, in the GM. It's a much stronger company, and uh, maybe it wouldn't exist if it didn't go through bankruptcy, as you pointed out. And one of the things I wanted to bring up about bankruptcy, because as we talk about zombies um, globally, I want to hear from you. Um, in your research, did you find that countries that had better bankruptcy protections or bankruptcy reforms, they have fewer zombies, I guess, maybe with the exception of the U.S., but what did you find in your research around that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. That We looked at about a half a dozen um, different factors that impact zombieism by country. And yes, we found that countries with a uh, either reform in their bankruptcy system to make it um, easier and more productive to restructure rather than to liquidate. Um, uh, but liquidation is always an option in bankruptcy. We found 
that reforms and updates in the bankruptcy code of com companies countries definitely reduce zombies. And there's very good reason for that. Either the restructuring works and a company becomes more profitable, healthier, and is no longer qualified as a zombie, or it doesn't work and they liquidate. And if you liquidate, you're no longer a zombie. <laughs> so you're not part of the zombie ratio, if you will. Uh, but yes, we did find that. Uh, we, we also find that creditor rights, you know, uh, the stronger creditor rights countries uh, have fewer zombies for the same reason. Um, and, um, you know, for more liquidations in that case. So it's not always the best thing to have um, you know some of these variables going for it because you have uh, uh, and you end up with less zombies because it may be that these com companies, if they had a, a better bankruptcy code, uh, uh, would have restructured these companies and they survived. Incidentally, uh, one last thing about zombies. We calculated that maybe 15 to 20 percent of zombies recover and no longer as zombies, you know, uh, maybe on their own, but it takes a long time. Uh, about 30% get purchased by other companies, usually at very low prices. Um, about um, another 20% uh, go bankrupt uh, within uh, three years uh, after becoming a zombie, three or four years. Uh, and then there are a lot of firms, uh, sometimes we have trouble finding out what happened to them. But that takes care of most of the companies as to what happens. So, you know, zombies come and go. Um, one last thing about zombies, and I might ask your audience to, uh, do you think zombies went up or down during COVID? Well, I know the answer because I read your paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the answer is not much change, yeah. and uh, the, the, uh, or slightly um, um, slightly higher uh, zombies, but very very slightly. Now that might sound strange to you or some people at first, because you think of what happened in COVID and the pandemic is that we went into a serious recession, and that recession lasted a, a, a fair amount of time, even though they changed uh, the definition of recession to non-recession very quickly, but GDP, you know, suffered for a long period of time into 2021 uh, and then started turning around. Um, um, companies, obviously, uh, particularly in the entertainment industry or travel industry or um, many other services dropped dramatically. Um, uh, so you would think more zombies, but at the same time, uh, we had moratoriums on interest rates. We had some countries of the world, uh, you know, forbidding bankruptcy except when fraud was involved. Uh, and we had um, um, all sorts of lending programs that supported these companies and provided liquidity so that they could survive. Uh, so that, you know, essentially balanced the ones that went out of existence. And so the, the net result was not much change. You know, we had positive impact on zombies and less so during COVID. Um, uh, that's what we found anyway in our paper. 
Well, I know we only have a few moments left. I do want to ask you because you mentioned, Dr. Allman, you've been traveling uh, to various countries, giving lectures. I am kind of curious. Uh, what are folks asking you about these days? Um, are there any questions that come up that are particularly interesting to you? Um, I mean, are people asking you about the recent banking crisis here, um, the 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 collapse of Silicon Valley banks and other banks for your take there? What what are people most interested in or maybe they're asking about are we going to have a hard landing or a recession what yeah. are folks keen to discuss these days well obviously one uh question among financial uh professionals globally is you know whether we're going to have um, a recession and also what impact will it have on the credit markets because uh while you know their markets are different than ours usually uh europe for example follows what happens here you know within six months or a year uh, uh either economically or uh, among uh, uh, firms uh themselves or um you know you know we provide uh you know like buying of goods uh from china so if we have a recession china is going to suffer uh because of that uh and vice versa for many other countries if china has a recession uh so they're interested in that uh the other thing i think that um a lot of uh, uh credit professionals are interested in even academics um i might add are quite interested in it is um are there new techniques out there that can uh help in um and predicting um credit cycles or predicting um whether a company will default or not uh and one of the new techniques that um i found very helpful even though i was a skeptic uh, uh some people may know this but very few that i actually uh late in life decided to get involved in entrepreneurship and started a fintech uh, based in London and Mumbai, uh, called uh, Wiser Funding. And Wiser Funding started out using Z-score type methodologies, but specialized for SMEs. And then we found that we could add value to the predictive um, ability of models to predict defaults or non-defaults among SMEs by using artificial intelligence. And um, I was a skeptic because artificial intelligence, first of all, you know, it, it was an unproven science. Um, and if it provided information on the companies, they were mainly qualitative types of information, you know, lawsuits or uh, accounts payable problems or environmental problems, climate change. These are all important for corporate resiliency but very difficult to quantify and very difficult to quantify in a bankruptcy prediction model. But what we did is we transformed through um, word uh, recognition uh, techniques using AI, uh, those variables that we could find on companies, those um, information uh, pieces on companies and take that information quantify it maybe crudely like yes no or one to five or something like that 
added to the financial data from financial statements, adding some macro data perhaps as well. And it really enhanced the accuracy of our models. So, um, you know, a lot of people are asking about, well, what about using machine learning or other types of uh, pattern recognition uh, techniques? Well, these things have been around a long time. They just haven't been um, identified and utilized efficiently for predictive purposes. But now they're getting to be used much more, as everyone knows. Um, and um, I think combining with traditional techniques is a very powerful way of predicting financial health of companies. So people are asking me, because I've had experience now with you know, the traditional and non-traditional, you know, what do I really think about it? Uh, and when I, I mentioned Croatia, well, in Croatia, we built a model called Omega Score. It's an academic model, but that in, uh, involves um, uh, looking at firm uh, employment history. You know, how many people get fired? Uh, what's the longevity of management? Turnover, et cetera, as uh, important variables in predicting health of companies. And uh, that was all done through uh, machine learning. So, yeah, I think uh, uh, those are questions. Uh, everybody, of course, wants the holy grail as to, you know, what's the stock market going to be next week or next year? Or, or what will interest rates be? Or will there be a recession? You know, uh, I may not be any better than anyone else in saying whether there'll be a recession. But I will tell you, if there is a recession, what impact will it have on things like default rates and the credit cycle? Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much for your great questions. I have to say, Dr. Ed Allman, you are such a delight to interview. I always, I always learn something from you. And um, I've been, you know, very privileged and fortunate to get to interview you over the years. And I thank you for being so generous with your time. If you if you want to let folks know, I, I'm going to share some of your research. I can share some of your research in the notes of the show, but if you want to let folks know maybe where they can I don't know if they can, if they want to read more or if you have any other parting thoughts for them. Um, you mentioned well, Wiser know. Funding. Anything else yeah. before we go? Certainly Wiser Funding. Check us out on the, uh, on the web, wiserfunding.com to find out more about our credit analytics. Um, uh, we recently uh, wrote a book. It's, you know, a very niche book on corporate bankruptcy, financial restructuring and um, bankruptcy. Um, published in 2019 with Wei Wang and uh, Edie Hoshkis. Um, you know, my publisher loved that. I plug it and it needs all the plugs it can get. Uh, um, other than that, just uh, check me out uh, my website, uh, you know, uh, lists uh, my current publication, but you're more than welcome to send out my zombie paper and uh, my latest work on where we are in the credit cycle. I was looking on my bookshelf because I I know I have one of, I I have one of your books on my bookshelf. Uh, well, uh, the latest one is the fourth edition of that corporate financial distress and bankruptcy, and it came out in two thousand nineteen. That's the the latest one, and it takes you through the evolution of Z scores over the last fifty years plus years, uh, and shows you not only not not so much how the model has changed. But how to interpret the model, that has changed. And uh, that's very important for uh, readers to understand that. This is the one. Okay, I just got off my bookshelf. I don't have your newest one, but I do have 
uh, yeah. corporate yeah. financial distress and bankruptcy, yeah. third edition. Yeah. And I did, I marked it up at the time when I was reading it. It would have been back in 2017 when I got this one. Yeah, that's uh, that's the third edition. The fourth edition came out in 2019. I'll be happy to send you a copy. I would love that. Well, I have to say, Dr. Ed Altman, Max Elheim, Professor of Finance Emeritus at NYU Stern School of Business. It is always a pleasure to talk to you and learn from you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas and your knowledge. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Julia. It's always a pleasure.